Welcome to the Startup Grind Podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you got to be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China and delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. Hey there, and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today, we have a conversation with Gagan Biani, the CEO and co-founder of Sprig, whose mission it is to make eating well simple. Open your phone when you're hungry, tap a button, and get a healthy meal delivered in 15 minutes. Sprig has raised $57 million from Greylock Partners and the Social Capital Partnership and is available in San Francisco, Chicago, and Palo Alto. Prior to founding Sprig, he was a growth advisor for Lyft, where he led supply and demand acquisition for their launch in Los Angeles. Gagan previously was a co-founder and president of the education marketplace Udemy, which has raised over $113 million and has 7 million students worldwide. Gagan is interviewed by Greylock partner Simon Rothman. Simon invests in entrepreneurs building consumer networks and platforms, and he leads Greylock's $100 million commitment to marketplace investments. His area of focus includes network effect businesses and transaction-based startups with a specialty around marketplaces. He has also served as an advisor to many marketplaces and networks, including Lyft, Tango, TaxRabbit, Poshmark, and others. Let's listen in to Gagan Biani, interviewed by Simon Rothman at our Startup Grind San Francisco chapter. Okay. Um, so what I thought we'd do, if it's okay with folks, and if you guys have some questions, uh, let us know, and happy to kind of uh, take them is that um, there are very few entrepreneurs in town who have actually started multiple companies and they've been successful. And Gog and I have talked about this. Um, I think he's going to be one of the only guys in town who has helped start and build three unicorn companies. We'll see. Udemy is almost there. Lyft is there. And I'm pretty damn sure that Sprig will be there soon. So, um, so he's got really good experience. And I thought we'd talk a little bit about um, how to build companies generally, and then go from there and talk a little bit about Sprig. Okay? So um, there are two things that people in the Valley don't talk enough about that I'd like to start with. Right? One is something that people say, but I don't think they mean, and the other is something people don't talk about at all. Um, the first is um, I think the struggle is real. Like Building a company is hard, and I think entrepreneurs um, kind of make it sound like, and I think the media makes it sound like, companies were inevitable. So when you see it, you read about it in TechCrunch, and then all of a sudden it just seems like everything is an overnight success. But they're not. They're really, really hard to build. And I thought maybe we'd start with kind of giving folks a sense of the complexity and the difficulty of building. And then after that, we can talk about uh, the other thing I like, which is the hustle is real, which is Nothing happens. Getting something from zero to one doesn't happen itself. It's heroic. It's epic. And I thought we'd start here with both those things. I think in, in many ways, Goggin, for me, personifies both. And I think he can actually help you guys think through that. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, everyone, for having me, uh, and Simon, for uh, starting real easy here. Um, so look, I think, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because personally, I'm actually a fairly critical, self-critical guy and, and generally not the type of person who's just rah-rah optimistic. And so actually, you know that for me, the struggle feels very real on a daily basis because uh, when building companies 
I'm always thinking about all the things that we need to work on and improve on and I'm driving the team or my co-founders or whatever towards that. And so, you know, I think there wasn't, I don't know that there's ever been a real time in any company that I've been involved with, including Lyft, which was, you know, I, I had a very small role at Lyft, but I was there during a very important time for Lyft. Um, but including Lyft, which today is obviously already, you know, done in some ways. It's already going to be a huge company. It already is. Um, but in all three companies, Udemy, Lyft, and Sprig, I don't think there was ever a time where I was like, where I was like content, right? Like <laughs> where I felt like things were going well and everything's smooth. And I had, I think 90% of my emotions and thoughts and, and sort of work is always towards things that are, that need to be improved or that could be better or that we're working on for the future. And, and maybe 10% of it is actually on like celebrating some sort of success or just being excited about something, so. Well, let me maybe clarify that. So <clears throat> are there moments as you're building these that you kind of have a crisis of confidence where you just aren't sure it's going to work? I know externally it's very yeah. good to kind of you know, portray that you know it's gonna work and everything's great, but I'm not sure that's exactly how companies actually get built. Are yeah. there moments where you just don't believe? Yeah, it's, it's actually a great question. So I, there are three states, right? And, and you really just, and it's a roller coaster, so obviously you actually flip between all sorts of states, but I'll define it as three. Um, there's the state where you, where, which is the normal state, the state that I'm describing. And every entrepreneur has a different way of being in this state, but for me it's like super nervous, working hard, heads down, thinking about problems. In that state, you are generally optimistic about where things are going, but are consistently focused on the things that need to be improved. And then there's two other states. Uh, and, and these are the states that really jerk you around a little bit. There's the, uh, there's the euphoric state, right? The state where, oh my God, we just closed the round of funding, or we just signed a big deal, or we're, you know, we just hit you know, half a million meals sold or whatever. And those moments come, you know, every once in a while. And those are the moments that you read about in the press. So actually what's funny is even the regular state, the state that's most common is something you never hear anything about at all, right? And you see the press highlights are usually the states that are euphoric. And then if you're unfortunate, the press highlights also fit on the other side. But we've been lucky so far. It'll happen eventually at spring, I'm sure. But um, and then, of course, there's the opposite state, which is a crisis of confidence. I would call it despair, depression. Call it whatever you want, you know. But it's, it honestly happens every month, I would say. Like, maybe, maybe like, in the last three... No, yeah, I can probably think of a time this past week where it's happened. And it, it's just like... And it just depends on, you know, gradients, right? It's not like in the last week I was worried, you know, we, have, we were doing well, so it's not like I was worried about the long-term success of Sprig, but I'm worried about something that is an existential threat to Sprig. And then there are times that are just absolutely like, I remember times at Udemy, when we raised our first round of financing, you know, we were ready to shut the business down and we were having those honest conversations with our advisors was, you know, don't think it's going to work out. Like we've got it. We're going to give it another month and we'll see, but I think we're going to, we're going to shut the business down in a month. And I think I've been in situations like that probably at least a dozen times over the last six years. So once, once every six months. And, and to put it in perspective, I'm not sure I know any successful company that hasn't had a near-death experience at least once. Um, and I think, again, from the outside, it feels like they're perfect, they work well, they're special companies. I kind of think that's the way it is, right? 
So let's talk a little bit about the hustle. So my personal belief is that the marketplace right now for building companies is very noisy, very loud. Lots of money, lots of entrepreneurs, lots of things getting built. And in order to pierce, you know, kind of break the noise level and kind of break through, you've got to really just hustle, hustle hard. And I think that trait isn't um, emphasized enough. And I mean, I know you've got that in spades. And I'm not convinced entrepreneurs that don't have that should be building, to be honest. I think if you don't have that, you shouldn't build. Maybe, you know, follow someone who does. But maybe talk about the role of just absolute hustle and give maybe an example of, like, doing something. We've talked about having... People talk MVP products. We've talked about ghetto products, the kind of products that it's beyond being embarrassed. You'd be humiliated if anyone saw them. You don't even build the product. You don't even code it. You hack it together with other people's stuff. And maybe you can give some, you know, some folks a sense of what it means to hustle to build something. Sure, yeah. I mean, I'll echo the sentiment, which is that I think... It's actually, I never really thought of it exactly the way you just described, but I think one of the things that I find when I meet entrepreneurs who I at least personally don't have confidence in. And again, my decision on my opinion of whether an entrepreneur, I have a lot of confidence or I have no confidence is by no means a measure of their potential success. But it's usually around hustle. It's usually like, do I feel like this person when the going gets tough is going to be able to go through and power through and sort of figure it out? And it's a combination of toughness and also ingenuity. I think people often talk about the toughness, but never talk about the ingenuity, right? Some people are willing to stick it through, but they're sticking it through doing the same thing over and over again, and just they're just failing over a very long period of time, which is actually what most sort of founders are, right? Most founders have already decided that they're willing to face death in the, you know, look death in the face and keep marching on, but most of them don't have the ingenuity to actually get themselves out of that problem. So, you know... An example, so I'll, I'll talk about the example we were just talking about Udemy because I think it's a really good one and it, it paints a picture of, of how Udemy was started and really where I got my entrepreneurial uh, uh, career started. Um, when we were starting Udemy, the biggest challenge in, in any marketplace is the chicken and the egg problem, right? And, it, it, and it's, a real, it's a real challenge and it's a challenge that exists not just in the early stages but actually exists as the marketplace grows because as the marketplace grows, as you expand to new markets, whether it's Lyft where you're expanding geographically or whether it's Udemy where you're expanding along categories, right? You're always dealing with new chickens, new like uh, marketplace dynamics where you need to increase the chicken and the egg and sort of introduce one or the other. And so at Udemy, the challenge was, how are we going to convince anyone to teach on this platform that we built? We built this beautiful technology. It was amazing. It was way overbuilt, you know, 150,000 lines of code before we ever launched the product. Um, and of course... First sign of not enough hustle, but fair enough. Yeah, yeah exactly, right? Um, uh, and, and so way overbuilt, and it was like, but wait a second, there's no courses on the platform, so we can't get any users. And there's no users, so we can't get any courses. So nobody wants to teach on a platform for which there's no students. And nobody wants to be a, be a student on a platform for which there's no content. And so we had multiple iterations of Hustle, but I think the most ingenious one was the idea of scraping YouTube. So there's actually tons of educational content on YouTube, obviously. Everyone understands that. And that was actually the biggest question we got from investors was, well, how is Udemy different from YouTube, right? And so we were like, well, you know, what's funny was we were pitching it, 
And at the same time, we had built this crawler that could actually, like, anytime you took a YouTube playlist, it would just make a Udemy course out of it. So it would take all the metadata from the, Udemy, from the YouTube uh, playlist, and it would plug it into Udemy, and then all of a sudden, you'd have these beautiful courses. So we, when we launched Udemy, we had, like, 500 courses, all from entrepreneurs. Like, Marissa Meyer was on our homepage, and Mark Zuckerberg, and all that. And we never intended to lie about this, and we, we very explicitly indicated that these were not courses that were made on U Udemy. That was not a intent, but it was just a way of showing people, like it was just showing people how the product worked. And so the first set of courses on Udemy were actually YouTube videos. Um, and, uh, and that was like an example of just like most people who were competing with us never even thought of that solution. So they might have been trying very hard, but they weren't in, uh, they didn't have the ingenuity. Along with you. I, I think the lesson here is that um, <clears throat> the default state for a startup is death, right? It, it, it won't work, and you should go in knowing that, and that you should be fighting that, um, and I think hustle is one of the core ingredients. You just have to do it. And the whole notion we're talking about MVP, I think we need to be introducing a new concept of like pre-MVP. I think the MVP is too heavy and too much work. I think if you're coding, you probably are starting you know, too far down the road. I think there are lots of ways to kind of hack these things together even without that, so yeah. fair enough. And actually the MVP, there's a great example of that, which is how we started Sprig, yeah. right? And I, so- I remember this one. Yeah. Actually Sprig is interesting because it was my second company, but also the third time I had seen a startup and I had four years of experience, three years of experience roughly in startups, which is obviously not a long time, but in startup land of building a couple uh, successful companies or, or you know, tra good trajectory companies, I think it was, it was sufficient. And I was very much schooled in the idea of lean startup. Um, but I think a lot of people like, still, like you say, they, they overcook what they think an MVP is. Sprig's first product, so Sprig's goal, mission is to make healthy eating universally success accessible, right? So we want everyone in the world to have access to a great meal. And our basic idea is that processed food's bad for you. Um, in fact, it's much worse for you than like high caloric content or high carb food. Which is, a, which is an interesting uh, thesis. But, um, and so we want to make that accessible to people. And so we built this idea that what if you could open your phone anytime you're hungry, press a button, and get a meal delivered to you in 15 to 20 minutes, right? And that's what Sprig does today. Well, when we started Sprig, it was two business guys, no engineering background. I could not even write a line of SQL at that point because I'd forgotten it, right? So no engineering background. And you know, we were just quitting our jobs. So, and, and, and neither of us had any money. And you know, we had gotten to a point where we wanted, we knew we wanted to start this idea, but we were like about to start to try to make and deliver food, and it was crazy. And we started pitching the business to to investors. And you actually met us before we even before we even launched, before we even quit our jobs. Um, <laughs> and we had no idea how to do this because the problem is that the only way to really build this platform was to build a real-time architecture that could route drivers in real time to customers and deliver meals. And then you'd have to build a kitchen basically or some sort of a network of chefs to actually make food at scale. So the actual effort associated with making Sprig is like really high, much higher than you know Instagram or something like that. And so what we ended up doing was we, we took all of the process of what we wanted a customer to experience at Sprig and we figured out how we could hack every single part of it, right? And so for the ordering experience, instead of a mobile app, it was Eventbrite, right? So Eventbrite allows you to buy something online, like buy a ticket. So we created an Eventbrite page that had tickets 
for each meal. So the first meal was, you know, one ticket and the second meal was another ticket and you could pay, you know, $15. So that took that care of that. Then once the order came in, we had to send confirmations to the customer to say, hey, you know, because you just submit this ticket on Eventbrite and you're supposed to get food later, so you're a little confused. And so we actually then, you know, copy and pasted whatever, uh, we, had a, we had a standard message that we copy and paste, put into iMessage, and we text message people. So we'd manually be text messaging via our cell phones, right, via iMessage. And then after that, it's like, okay, wait a second, but then we have drivers who are out on the road with food that we have to get, you know, so we have to get food, so we put an ad on Craigslist and we hired chefs off of Craigslist and paid them to basically come in and make like a batch of 50 meals, right? 25 of one, 25 of the other. So there, that's the chef. No kitchen, do it in your own kitchen. We don't know where you're making it, like make it in a, you know, make it in a commercial kitchen, but we don't care where it comes from, just give it to us, right? So they came and brought us, brought us the meals. And then, of course, after that, there's the, there's the challenge of dispatch, which is super hard because dispatch is like a very difficult technical challenge. I mean, even today at Sprig, Dispatch is extremely hard. It's something we deal with every day. And so we actually ended up routing it. So the thing is that I happen to be a, a resident of San Francisco for about, about now like almost five years. Um, and so I know the city quite well. I'm also just a nerd about maps. Um, and so I became our dispatcher. And so anytime an order came in, we'd have a Google spreadsheet that had all the inventory. We'd have another Google, we'd, we'd have a Google Maps open uh, in another window. And then we had a map of the city because for me, visualizing a map, like I couldn't visualize all these cars on the map at the same time. And Google Im Maps doesn't give you a good interface for that. So we actually had a physical world map where we would move the car to their next destination so we would know where they are. And the car, like, who's, what's going to be a car? So we, we actually found, I was looking at in my living room, and there was a box of Settlers of Catan. So I picked up six Settlers of Catan pieces that were all six different colors. Each car had a color. And then in Google Spreadsheets, we'd change the inventory. And then we'd, we'd get an ETA via the maps. And then we'd send the customer the ETA. And we'd, we'd, that was the dispatch. So now it was Sprick, right? Um, and that's what I call, like, a combination of hustle and ingenuity. That was the ghetto product I was referencing. Um, <laughs> And so let, let, let me summarize that. One idea, no money, no code, 24 hours. That's how, that, that is hustle and that's how you build stuff. I mean, I remember we were having conversations that time. Um, I think you were a little bit embarrassed about that. Like you're like, I, you know, and I just had this sense of pride and this overwhelming sense like, oh, this is great, this is beautiful. Um, even though it was probably the ugliest hacked together thing, I think that it, it showed a lot of um, not just hustle, but ingenuity to your words. So I think that was, that was great. So I think looking to build that way is how you build today. I think that was not true five years ago and definitely not true 15 years ago. But today, that's how you build. So let me, let me change it up a little bit. Um, and, and I don't know if anyone here is looking to raise, but we're right now in this kind of holiday fundraising season, which starts Thanksgiving. Well, it starts Labor Day and ends roughly around Thanksgiving. Um, and so we're most of the way through that. But I, I get a lot of questions about, you know, how you raise. You've now successfully raised a lot of money very, very quickly. What tips do you have? Like, you know, my tips are going to be very, very different as a, a venture guy. But what tips do you have on how to raise, what you should do, how do you pick a partner? Like, what would you do if your best friend asked you, you know, how to raise? What would you tell them? Yeah. Um, it's a great question. A question I try to avoid uh, answering because it means that that person's really asking me for, for uh, it, it's a very complex challenge, right? I mean, raising money is hard, and it takes a sort of unique sort of sales skill. But I think what, 
What the most important thing to understand is that fundraising really is just sales at the end of the day. You're pitching someone on, on basically buying stock in your company in exchange for the opportunity to become very, very well, right? And so you have to really understand who your target is. And so I would say the first thing that you should do if you're trying to learn how to raise money is learn why investors invest. And it is extremely amazing to me how often founders have no idea, right? How often I'll hear a founder come to me and tell me about their idea and never give me a reason why I should care, right? And so the start of this is just understand what investors think about, what they're looking for, and understand what type of investor is going to be a fit for you because it very much is a specific type of investor. Every investor has a different thesis. And you have to understand that the investing landscape is just as complex as the startup landscape. There are hundreds and hundreds of potential tech investors, and then there are hundreds of thousands of professional investors, and then there are hundreds of millions of real investors because we all invest our money by putting them into banks, right? Bank of America, Chase, whatever. That's investing your money, right? That's putting your money in, in something and then expecting it to either grow or stay the same or you're making a decision there. So understanding that, I think, is the start of it. Um, and on a more tactical level, the thing that is also important, okay, understanding who they are and why they care, but then also understanding how they filter their, 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 their inbound uh, traffic, essentially. So investors are bombarded with thousands upon thousands. Uh, I mean, you told me the number. I always find this crazy because, like, I can't imagine, A, having that many meetings, but B, tracking that many meetings. I'm like, what kind of CRM system do VCs have? But you, what, how many meetings a year? So we will have a typical uh, investor. I'll probably get, I don't know. 5,000, maybe more inbound. I'll probably meet somewhere between 500 and 1,000 companies. And then we will make, I'll make one to two uh, investments a year. Yeah. And that's actually not atypical. And you'll get even more folks to get inbound that you don't even open the email. You just, our, our rule generally is if it's not warm intro by someone you know and trust, you just don't have time to open those emails. Uh, so it's, that's typical. That's not atypical at all. A quick break from the interview for some recent startup headlines. Tesla has issued a voluntary recall for 2.7 thousand Model X vehicles. A flaw was discovered during seat strength tests. The company found that their third row seat back may fold forward during a crash, which is due to a problem with its locking hinge. The company recalled its Model S after finding one with an improperly connected seat belt earlier last year. A new cable TV provider called Layer 3 TV is set to launch in Chicago and several other cities in the next few months. The company will include Netflix, Amazon Prime, and other digital video options alongside regular programming. Its guide uses preferences, demographics, and more to prioritize program listings. The Daily Mail's parent company, DMGT, is considering a bid for Yahoo's news and media divisions, according to the Wall Street Journal. The journal cites talks with private equity firms over a possible partnership bid. The newspaper confirmed the report, but suggests that the bid has yet to be arranged. Let's get back to the interview. So that's the key, right? The key is the warm intro, and, and, and you read about this all the time. What's funny, actually, is that that is written up, right, to death, is the idea of getting a warm intro, and investors always need a warm intro. But what's not written is how do you get someone to be a warm intro, right? And that is very much about hustle. Right? And it's about ingenuity. It's about finding those nodes of influence throughout the tech ecosystem and convincing them that you're someone that they should bet their reputation on. And I think very, very often founders expect 
that the person they're meeting with will want to help them because it's like, hey, I'm a friend. We're all founders. We're all trying to build something together. Actually, if you're a successful founder, that's not true. First of all, I don't give a shit about you because I'm busy building my company. So I don't have time. I want to think about you. In five years, if I'm successful, I'm going to be able to help you a lot more than I can help you today. So the thing I'm thinking when I meet successful founders is I can help you today, but it'd be like giving 10 bucks to charity, right? Wouldn't do a whole lot. Maybe make a difference in your life today. What's the big deal? What if in 10 years I have a million bucks to give in char to charity instead? I'd much rather do that. So that's an example of something that goes on in my head when I'm thinking about whether or not I even want to take a meeting with a potential entrepreneur. And so figuring out how to push my buttons and get through is something that's really hard. Um, and figuring out the person for which you can get through to is hard as well. And you have to come up with that on a very targeted basis. So you actually need to build, a lot of people build investor lists, hit lists. I would say you should build warm intro hit lists of entrepreneurs, industry experts, people who investors tend to trust. And you should figure out your tactics on those people with the same level of fidelity and intention as you do with investors themselves. And I'd add a few, and I think that all makes sense. I'd add a few things. So if it's really, really early, what you're selling is yourself. Everything else kind of doesn't matter. So you know, when Goggin's actually putting together that thing with Eventbrite stitched together with a spreadsheet and he's driving around, you're betting on him, right? The moment you've got, you're beyond that, but before you have numbers, you, you bet on the dream, right? You have to sell the dream. And then once you have numbers, you're selling the business, right? You have to sell the vision. And there's a narrative, and I think everyone keeps forgetting, like, people buy into stories and dreams. They don't buy into presentations, and I can't tell you how often people present to me as opposed to telling me a story, right? And, and it's all a story. Everyone has a life story. Every business has an origin story. Every, every, everything has a story around it, and I would use storytelling techniques. Frankly, the best meetings I have, we don't even go through a deck. I mean, we, we cover all that same stuff, but it's told in a narrative format, and it's just, it's beautifully done, right? It should feel effortless, even though I'm convinced there's a lot of effort there, but the selling process should be telling a story, right? Your story. Yeah, right? and, and just to add to that, right, we just gave you a bunch of information that is like one hundredth of the information that's in our brains, right? And so the other thing is you need to go and research and learn how to tell a story, right? So if what Simon just said has so, so many layers of depth that we could never cover it in a one-hour talk, your job after a conversation like this is to say, okay, that was an interesting insight. I need to go learn more about it. And then go online, read books, do whatever you you know, talk to people, think about it in your head. My best way of thinking is I go for walks and I just churn through things in my brain over time. Um, but do whatever works for you and go and learn what we really mean by storytelling, what we really mean by warm introductions. There's a lot more depth there. And, and, and if you want, one thing I'd say about storytelling, um, if you look and you read, and I've, I've done a little bit of that, is that storytelling actually has three acts or three pieces. Situation, complication, resolution. They all, every great story, there's a reason they're a trilogy, the reason that, you know, plays are in three acts. Like, they're re it, it's the same. It's the same structure, it's the same format. And so you want to tell your story in a, a format that feels more like literature than it feels like keynote, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole goal. And, and if you're interested afterwards, happy to chat. I've sat through thousands of presentations and very few beautifully told stories, right? So happy to share it. 
So last thing here, Gongman, before we move on to general company building, is that you've seen, you know, you've been in multiple companies that have done really well. There's lots and lots of advice you can give. But if you give folks, someone who's building a company, one thing, the one thing that matters most, what would that be? What would be the tip you'd, you'd give someone? Something that I talk about all the time. I think people really don't understand what I mean, but I'm, I haven't figured out better language. So it's eliminate your ego, right? So uh, when you're building a company, it's very easy to get wrapped up in the personal narrative of that company, right? I have this vision for the future. That vision is this. I want to bring this vision to the world. My personal success is then tied to that vision because I've now told my friends and family about it. I've got sort of stubbornness around what, whether or not I'm right or someone else is because if I am a successful founder, I actually need to be right in some way because otherwise why are people going to follow me? And all of that stuff is just noise. You have to get rid of that noise and look at the real focus. Focus on the problem, which is your goal eventually is to find a really big market and to create a product that market needs that it doesn't have today. And whether it's your idea or it's the idea from the bus driver that you're you know, sitting in the bus with, or whether it's the idea that came to you while watching a cartoon, or whether it's some other entrepreneur's idea that you straight up stole and looked at and was like, that's a great idea, I like that idea, right? Doesn't matter where it comes from, you should focus on your goal, which is pleasing your market. And then when you think about the market, you need to learn to listen, right? So checking your ego is a lot about listening, it's about understanding really deeply what the customer is talking about and not thinking about it in the context of your own agenda, but rather just understanding it as their own story. And so I would say, like, broadly speaking to me, the best entrepreneurs are the entrepreneurs who can admit when they're wrong, oftentimes because those are the only types of people who can go through all of the different creative iterations that are required to actually build a great company. Most people get stuck in somewhere along the way because they're unwilling to get past the possibility that they may have to change their mind a little bit. And the part that's tricky about that is starting a company, you kind of, it's pretty pretentious. I mean, think about this. We say this here all the time, but when I go back to the Midwest, my family, they, they look at me kind of funny. Like, we talk about changing the world, making a difference. If you think about it, a handful of people with a handful of bucks over a handful of years changing everything. And that's, I mean, it's audacious. So I think there's a self-selection that the people who start companies are pretentious and have big egos. And I say that in a good way, but you got to find a way to counterbalance that because that strength that gave you the nerve to start a company is the exact same thing that could prevent you from winning, from doing well. And that is why part of the reason I think it's so freaking hard to build is you got to have both. You have to have both, and I think that's hard, right? I think having the ego and being pretentious and being delusional that you're just so right that you have to bet everything on it matters more. That, that you can't teach. You have that or you don't. That's the passion to do it. I think you can learn to kind of check your ego. I think that is learnable. I've seen people do that, but you got to do it early. I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, let's change gears a little bit. Uh, everyone talks about the on-demand economy, um, and there are very few people that really know where it's going. I think a lot of people have opinions and the opinions are very, quite varied. So you've been involved from essentially the beginning. I mean, you could argue Lyft was the first, you know, on-demand company or at least at the very, very beginning. And, you know, now with Sprig, we're, we're in the middle. What do you think, how's this playing out? I mean, some people would say that we're at the end. Some people say it doesn't even exist as a fabrication. All these companies are going to go away. They're not going to work. Yeah. What's your take? Yeah, so, I mean, 
Look, I think it's obvious that companies come in generations, right? So there, there really is a true movement of internet web 1.0, right? Amazon, Google, sort of just barely getting our foot in the door and understanding what the internet is and how it's going to be used and what the basic infrastructure is. And then, of course, there really was web 2.0, social, right? A little bit of mobile, but maybe not super deep, deep there, right? Social being the predominant factor. And I think Web 3.0 really is about the physical world, right? So it's about mobile, but it's about mobile and how it affects the physical world. And so I think like on-demand economy to me is like, it doesn't matter what you call it. You could call it the on-demand economy. We previously called it the sharing economy, which I actually think was an interim step between Web 2.0 and, and Web 3.0. But like at the end of the day, we're moving internet entrepreneurs as a, as a group are taking existing problems or markets and figuring out how a massive or major change in technological ad, technological advancement or technology some change in technology it could be advancement it could be penetration it could be behavior changes societal changes whatever but some change some change has occurred that has created a new opportunity that can now go and usually disrupt some old guys right and so I think that technology over time is slowly, slowly, slowly marching into everybody else's industries. And actually, if you think about it, that's what technology has always done, right? Like the manufacturing era, right? Uh, sorry, the industrial era. The industrial era, era was about taking a bunch of disparate like craft makers all over the world and completely destroying those businesses and centralizing them into factories, right? Because they were more efficient and better. And this was this new technology was factory production and mechanization and all that. And, you know, you see the same thing today, I think, with the, with the on-demand economy, which is we are now finally getting into the brick and mortar world. And we are going and saying, do you really need that store over there? Is that store efficient? It doesn't make sense to have 10 stores on the same block that all sell shoes. Does it make sense for us to have 20 restaurants on, uh, you know, on Market Street uh, on a three-block radius that sell, like, uh, that sell food that kind of sucks, right? Like, does it make sense for us to continue to serve food that is processed in a factory and that has all sorts of carcinogens in it just like tobacco does? Um, and, you know, does it make sense for hotels to have a monopoly on where you're going to stay when you go to a new city. All these things are the on-demand economy. So I think, I think you have you know, decades of more sort of investment and innovation of tech entrepreneurs taking on real-world physical problems. I agree. Listen, I'm biased, so you're going to have to take we're that. We're both biased. So we're both very biased. We're, we're neck deep in it. But I think um, this, right, this thing right here, what this does, I mean, there's a lot of things. This can... It's powerful, but this stitches the real world and the virtual world. This gives you a sense of real time and real place. I'm here now, and this, with the computing power, enables me to stitch online and offline in a way that was impossible before. And, and doing that, fusing those two worlds, I think, creates a whole wave of opportunity, and it inverts every possible uh, preconceived notion. I'll give you an example. You used to look at kind of um, physical infrastructure like hotels as an asset. I have a big hotel, it's a beautiful hotel, and, and it felt like it was an asset. That now feels like a liability because why do you own that hotel? Why shouldn't that be someone's home? And so when you start stitching the real world and the virtual world, you start reassessing assumptions and nothing feels the same. And so I'm a big believer we're pretty early, but I don't think most companies that are on demand will work. 
but many of them will, right? So yeah, and, and most companies of every category don't work. Don't. I mean, Absolutely. how many social networks failed before Facebook existed? And how many like more social companies got built mm. after Facebook that never really became that big? I mean, it's such a ridiculous, it's, it's an example of how poorly informed our uh, public is, and particularly the media, that they even talk about a like about the bursting of a bubble as a result of one or two economic events, like one or two companies failing. It's such a such a poor understanding of how economies work. That doesn't actually mean that there's no bubble. I actually think that's a whole different conversation. But if you know Homejoy failed, that doesn't mean the on-demand economy doesn't work. It means one entrepreneur screwed up, spent way too much money, opened up to 50 markets, and of course the business failed. But by the way, like one in ten of those businesses are supposed to succeed, so nine nine of them are supposed to fail. That's that's good. That's how this works. By the way, I wish it was nine out of, n only nine out of ten failed. Yeah. Like it's like nine hundred ninety-nine out of a thousand. Right? Yeah. But well, it's nine out of ten of venture-backed companies, like over ten years or something. There's some stat. Fair enough. I have no All idea. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Sprig, right? So let's go in. So there's always an origin story of how companies get started, and I'm all, I'm personally fascinated by it. I know I happen to know Sprigs, um, but. There's this story you tell external world, that's a beautiful story, and then there's a story you tell our close friends here, not the podcast. What, what is the origin story? I mean, walk through the, the vision, but why you started it and how it really got started. Yeah, I'll actually tell a story I haven't told before that's, that's related, that really caused this. So, um, growing up, I was an athlete. Uh, I was really scrawny and small, so I was never going to be a real athlete, but I loved sports and was always a huge fan. And, and played a lot of sports and was very competitive. Um, and you know, by the time ninth or ninth grade came around, I got to high school. I realized like there's no way I can play with the big kids. So I, I did other activities like speech and debate and school newspaper and just nerdy, nerdy stuff. But highly competitive, always athletic. Still played football. Tack I played tackle football until about a year and a half ago, like with my friends. Um, so and uh, so was pretty active. And then in college, I was still pretty active. You know, in college, you can play intramurals. You can do all sorts of things. And then I started Udemy. And, and you know, I spent three years heads down in an office just working, 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 working. And I think this happens to lots of people. But for me, it was pretty extreme. I was working 80 to 90 hours a week, right? And every other time was just, like, indulgent, you know, just vegging on the couch or going and eating meals or whatever. And so after that... I suddenly left, you know, I left after, you know, me and my co-founders were talking about it. Eventually it was time for me to leave the company and I, I left and I, I kind of was lost. I was like, what the hell am I going to do next? You know, you have no idea. And, you know, I had kind of identified myself as an entrepreneur. But if you remember at that time, we hadn't met, but I've told you this story. I didn't actually know if I was going to start a company. I thought maybe I'd join one. In fact, I was, I was like 90% sure I would join one. Um, and so I was looking for a job. I was kind of hanging out and... Uh, as part of this, I went on a trip to Croatia uh, with uh, my girlfriend at the time, my best friend at the time, I mean, still my best friend, um, and, and my brother, I was about to say my brother at the time, wow, that would have been, been an epic fail, right? Um, no, but, but all people who I, who I really enjoyed, and, and none of them were particularly physically fit. Like, they're all fine, they're all like normal, you know, but, but none of them were athletes or sort of really focused on their health or wellness. And... Uh, I remember in Croatia, like slowly after all the walking that you do in Europe, 
I actually came back and my feet were swollen. I mean, they were just swollen, both feet. And they would swell for like, you know, hours on end. And then I'd have to sit and just not, I wouldn't be able to walk. And, uh, and it, was, it was really like embarrassing, to be honest, because we couldn't figure out what happened. I didn't have any injury. It's or called anything. exercise. Yeah, exactly. And so what ended up happening was I had stress fractures in my feet because I wasn't used to walking. It's like absolutely absurd thing, right? Um, especially if you know me today and I walk like five to ten miles a day basically. So by the way, anyone who's watched the movie Wally, that's kind of like the, the vision of the future that yeah. no one ever walks again. Fair enough. Yeah, exactly, right? I felt like a character from Wally. Um and and not the robots, the the people. Um so so the so I ended up having this and that was kind of the wake up call for me. That was the moment where I was like geez, this is not sustainable. I really need to stop. And I started to assess what I was eating and how I was, how I was exercising. And my roommate, um, my roommate at the time, uh, and he, he was a total health nut, and so I went to him for advice. And he was like, you know, uh, actu- health is about 70% um, diet and 30% exercise, and everyone thinks it's the reverse. So everyone thinks it's, it's 70% exercise and 30% diet. It's really not. And of course... Everyone here now knows this. I mean, this is all commonplace, but I hadn't thought about it or read any health blogs or anything at the time. So, And so I started eating much better. I started cooking. I started eating organic food. And I started to feel a lot better. And I started working out three times a week. And I realized how much, and I would play with it, you know, just like the body hacking stuff. And it totally changed my life. And today, you know, I probably stay awake three to four hours longer. Um, I'm happier, I have better personal relationships, and oh, by the way, I started a company to go help everyone else in the world do the same thing. So that's actually like really the origin story of, of Sprig. That's where the personal motivation come from, came from. Um, and then of course the professional motivation came from being at Lyft and being kind of embarrassed to see a company that didn't exist six months prior grow faster than my company had in three years. <laughs> so I think I remember joining Lyft and being like, what, you've been around for six months? and your run rate is where Udemy was two years in, okay, something's going on here. And, and really understanding the magic of online to offline uh, services. No, it's, um, it's, it's a great story. Um, and I find that most entrepreneurs that actually do well tend to have an emotional connection to the business they're building. Um, occasionally you'll find this very, very big disconnect between what they're building and it's, it's this founder company fit. Like you want to see that fit, that it, it's natural for them to do it. And I think if you don't have that emotional connection, you should re- revisit why you're going to spend the next decade or more of your life, every waking moment, um, and, and, and invest everything into it if you don't feel that connection. So um, let's talk a little bit about an operating company. Right, so uh, I think a lot of people look at on-demand businesses as tech companies. A lot of people look at it as operating businesses, right? And, and in many ways, it has elements of both. And, and what I like to say is, I mean, they're hard to build because you have to count pennies and count seconds. I mean, you really just, they're very, very specific. Talk about what it means and what it takes to build a business that has real operational complexity. It's hard, you gotta move things and people from place to place with SLAs that are super, super tight. And that's different than just software, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so you think about a software company like a Facebook or a Udemy even, right? And uh, you're ultimately just making, you're writing code that, um, that affects machines and, and, then, and then in some way gets connected to people on the other end. And so what's interesting about software is that it, 
it has a very unique way of operating. I'll give you an example. The best example is if you write a, a conversion optimization test on a landing page and you know the first conversion was at 25% and you bump the conversion up to 30%, you keep that conversion, you bank it. Anytime you do anything in the future, you're always gonna be at a 30% conversion. It's very rare for software to degrade in any way. There's no force pulling it down. Talk about operations and then talk about food and they're completely different. Food and ops are actually very different also. So actually at Sprig, we're dealing with three different types of companies. We're dealing with a techni technical company, an engineering product, which is the dispatch system, the real-time algorithms, the prediction, and then of course any um, customer-facing uh, app, etc. And then you're dealing with operations, which is logistics. It's moving people and places around where you have to deal with variables such as traffic, such as weather, such as human error, which is natural, and you have natural error rates. You can't just, it's not software. You can't assume it's going to be up 100% of the time. It's going to have downtime to account for that. You have to account for people not showing up to their shifts, you know, like, uh, and things like that. And then you have food, which actually you have to account for material degradation over time, health and safety, which is something that's super critical, of course, and, and hard when you're doing delivery. Um, and then you also have to account for the fact that, that when you, uh, it's, it's almost chemical in nature. You, you add salt and, and, and sort of chicken together and all of a sudden you get a different flavor that may or may not resonate and different customers have different things. So what's interesting about Sprague is we've had to learn and certainly I've had to learn as an entrepreneur how to be good and think differently about three completely different types of problems and then marry them all together in one company. In many ways, it's like building three companies in one, and, and that's not a good thing, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's a super no, hard it's, thing. It's You're building a Lyft or an Uber almost completely, like a single application transportation marketplace, in addition to kind of a food business and a, kind of a, a software company, an ops company, yeah. It, it, it's hard, and, and you talk about like, um, we, we use it kind of shorthand of one-way ratchets, yeah. which is the, the idea that you're saying is that once you kind of get a gain, an operating gain, it takes as much effort, if not more effort, to harden and maintain that gain than it does. Because the default state is once you fix something operationally, it wants to go back to its old state, which is chaos and br being broken. And that's hard to do, right? And so you've looked at that. Like, do you think people or processes, like what matters most on the ops part of your business to make that work? What's yeah, the thing? It, it's all process, right? So, um, and it's about creating... Uh, processes that ensure and reinsure success on whatever you're trying to achieve, right? And so you want to double and triple check everything. So I think the best example actually is like if you've ever managed people, I know you've managed large organizations. One of the things that's really interesting is the difference between managing four people directly, then managing 16 people through those four people, and then managing, you know, whatever the next version is, 64 managers people. Managers who manage through, managers. Right, so. managers who manage managers, you know, and it just keeps going. And what's interesting about this is over time you realize how little control you have over what happens actually at your company, right? And uh, ops is like that, with the difference that you actually have to exercise full control. So in the case of a human organization, you can build a culture of excellence and you can build a culture and create certain values and you have enough control over filtering those people so you can actually ensure that that culture seeps down. Um, and that's one part of Sprig's operational excellence. And the other part of Sprig's operational excellence has a lot to do with systems and processes. You know, the best example is how do we make sure that a Sprig delivery driver is delivering you the right meal 
every time they show up at your door. Today, they might have five meals in their car, right? Five different options. They might have two different drinks, three different sides, four sauces, and all of them are mapped to different configurations of what we're going to deliver to a customer. And it's way too complex. I mean, I was on the road last night, actually. So I went and served last night. So this is very fresh in my mind. And, you know, I served maybe for three and a half hours. And during that time, I counted that I made three mistakes, right? So I'm, here I am, you know, allegedly operationally efficient, like probably the most knowledgeable of our system of anybody, and I still forgot the utensils for three different customers, right? And, and it, was, it was awfully embarrassing, and I've already fixed the problem in, in our system, but it's about checks and balances. So actually, like, at the loading stage, you can't just tell the person, hey, you've got an order for a chicken and it's marked as A and it's got this thing. You actually have to go in and force them to press a confirmation step. So we actually ask all of our servers to hit checkbox. Yes, I have the brown box with the food in it. Checkbox. Yes, I have the utensils. Checkbox. Yes, I have. So there was a little bug in the app and that's why I forgot the utensils, so we're fixing it. But the point is, like, this is... This is like, this is crazy. Like you're actually like creating multiple checks and balances along the way and then you have to train and retrain your workforce. And so you're building these, these systems that ensure that there's no, there's no failure point. And then of course, you still have to then check whether or not your systems work. So you have to have secret shopper programs that we're now creating at Sprig where we can check whether or not servers are doing a job and we can figure out what our error rate is, but we don't know what our error rate is because it's happening in real life. And so this whole thing is incredibly, it's challenging, but honestly, it's a lot of fun. It's really fun when you get it right. I, I think if, if you look at what we're talking about, these businesses that are kind of taking the virtual world and the, the real world combining them, you're building these hybrid organizations that have all the complexity of a, a real, real world company, but all the potential of a virtual company. And I think we're going to see these really hard to build, but really impactful, meaningful companies that come out of this wave. But they're not going to be easy. I, I, I think these are going to be some of the hardest companies that have ever been built, are being built right now. And my sense is 5, 10, 15 years from now when we go to the next big wave, those will be even harder than these. So this is not the hardest that will exist. But these are so much harder than software-only businesses. So listen, let me leave it at that. I want to make sure we have time for some Q&A.